hey there, what's up? This is Isadora Martindai from History Through a House. So normally we're telling you the story of Longlands, the house that we live in in Devon, and the history of England through it. But this week, due to the horrific scenes coming out of the States, which to many of you know is where I have spent the last 12 years of my life, we are taking a break from that. And it's just me today. I'm raw, unedited. I am not cutting my arms. And the boys are out. And I just felt compelled to talk to you guys a little bit about Roman history, which is where we're at. And it's a relevant story from that perspective. And it's relevant because the Romans definitely had a whole lot of real bad about them. But one of the very good things about them was that they didn't have a concept of race. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about Britain and not the history of those of color through slavery or through the civil rights movement. There are many, many people telling those stories. And I just wanted to tell you a story about some of the stuff I've been discovering over the last few months that's new information to me and hopefully is new information to you guys. I don't think it will change anything, but it's a story and it should be told and it should be recorded because if these stories are told and these stories are recorded, then some of these things might make sense or I don't, I don't know that any of these things could make sense, but there is a thousand ways of looking at things and people talk about history and how what's going on in America right now is because of history. Well, history can tell a very different story and it's not an excuse. People who say that those of color should go home are not talking, I mean, firstly, they're just talking out of their asses, but they're not talking even from a semi-educated standpoint. So let me tell you a little bit about it. And I want to just quickly name my sources, which is a few of them that I've talked or that I'm reading about are blackpresence.co.uk, africanresource.com, Armigrate.com, migration story which is a phenomenal website that covers so much more than I'm going to cover and I'm going to also talk to you about a few people who have done some extraordinary work to tell people a story's color now I was talking this episode through with my mother five minutes ago because I was I'm hesitant to do it because I think you can always land yourself in hot water even when you don't mean to but I want to be clear that a lot of what we're going to be talking about, the Romans didn't talk about race. They didn't see it, and it really isn't mentioned in the sense of telling you what color somebody was. They didn't, they legitimately, I mean, they saw color, but they did not record color. So we're going to be talking about people who are ranging from North Africa to Sub-Saharan Africa, which is a whole shade, a whole range of colors. But the point is that they're not white. They're not the color you would expect to see or the color you would think of you would see in at the forefront of British history. And they were... All right, 
brief break for the barky dog because one of the major problems with none of my family being around is that there's no one to dog sit and he can be a real brat. Okay, so my migration, our migration story, this fabulous website that really takes you step by step through not African, just African immigration to England, but European and uh, from people who everyone knows came over, like the Vikings, to the people that no one realizes come over, came over, which is some of the people I'm going to address today. I'm going to quote directly from their website. The population of Britain in the first century AD, oh sorry, we call it CE, had already been shaped by thousands of years of migration. Ever since the very first inhabitants came here, probably from southern Europe, there has been a continual process of settlement and trade. By the time the Romans invaded Britain in the year 43 CE, it was already a land of many cultures and languages. The Romans themselves, soldiers and settlers, came from all over Rome's empire. Because of all of this, uh, in and around the first century, Britain's population included people from as far afield as Africa, Syria, the Balkans and Scandinavia. We know this from architectural archaeological evidence. And guys, we've addressed this in the podcast, obviously, um, that one of the bodies discovered near Stonehenge was Swiss. And uh, we're going to go into some of the other bodies that have come from Africa. Um, the, my, the study of mitochondrial DNA came up a lot when we were talking about ancient people because there was no recorded and written history. But the Romans, like I said, didn't record race. So we are going back to looking at mitochondrial DNA again as well as tomb inscriptions and buried objects such as jewellery and pottery. From the 5th century onwards, invading settlers from northern Germany and Scandinavia battled for control of the lands that by 1000 had become united as the one kingdom of England, fought over by Viking and Saxon kings. We haven't got to that point in the history of a house yet, but at that point England was a country of many, many languages, Anglo-Saxon, Norse, Welsh, Roman, French, Cornish, Latin, and England, because it was part of Christen, Christendom, had strong cultural links with the rest of Africa. And there's many, many examples of trade and ideas from influence in Muslim North Africa and Western Asia. Okay, so we're going to talk first of all about the Beachy Head Lady. And she's a really interesting story because... There were a whole load of 300 skeletons from in the Eastbourne Museum that hadn't been catalogued. And Joe Seaman, who was the Eastbourne Museum's heritage officer in 2014, was given some funding to actually start recording and looking in at these skeletons that they had had. They, most of them were from Saxon ceremony, uh, cemeteries and most of them were excavated between 1992 and 1996, but some of them were excavated way back in 1890s. One of the boxes that they came about on said Beachy had something to do with 1956 or 1957, and that was it. And this is how she described the story in her own words. We opened it up, and inside there was a very well-preserved human skeleton, which, on initial inspection from our Austrio-archaeologist, was a female, very small, between 5 foot and 5 foot 1, and fairly young. The facial reconstruction was done by Caroline Wilkinson from Dundee University, one of the country's foremost reconstructors. Straight away on seeing this girl, she said, 
Oh, my, you realise you've got a sub-Saharan African here. Our osteo hadn't picked that up, but Caroline subsequently had it looked at by two more experts who agreed, without being prompted, that this individual showed many traits of being a sub-Saharan African person. They were 100% sure that this was the origin of the lady. What they didn't know at this point was what her date was, when she was carbon dated to, or where she was found. They did eventually get the radiocarbon dating back, and it came back with a firm Roman date of about 200 to 250 CE, which is right in the middle of Roman occupation. They It said beachy head on the box, but there was absolutely no evidence that that was where they actually came from. There was no evidence of where she was excavated. And really, honestly, without provenance, she could have actually just been an African skeleton from Africa. They did start to do isotopic radiocarbon testing on her, and it came back that her origin was actually southeast England from the Eastbourne area, which is where her skeleton was in theory or supposed to have been discovered. And this actually proved that she was Roman with a very firm sub-Saharan ancestry. They don't know if she was first generation, but she was certainly raised in southeast England. She looked at the different skeletons that had been dug up in the area in the 19th century and there was one from 1891 which talks about three skeletons being excavated from a roman cemetery it was on the west side of beachy head from the village of Eastine, and it mentions that one of the skeletons had a number of bangles on her arm which obviously would mean she was a woman it doesn't say much more about them and the bangles were kept by the museum but the museum was bombed by the germans in world war ii and the bangles were lost they are really hoping to be able to go back to that cemetery and do further excavation and maybe look for family members of this woman to see if she was an anomaly or a trend. And she is the first example of a darker-skinned person of colour in England. They don't know what her standing was. There's no written evidence that came with her chances are if she is this skeleton with the bangles based on the fact that she had good teeth she was in good health she died at 2021 and they can't figure out why but based on those things it's unlikely that she was a slave so she was probably there as a free person under her own steam and i think says a lot and we'll come back to this time and time again these things weren't recorded which means they weren't unusual i'm not saying that Statistically, you're likely to dig up a skeleton of sub-Saharan descent. Obviously, this is a fairly rare one. We've talked time and time again on the podcast about how excavating sites is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to grant permission of. And isotope testing these skeletons, 300 of which were sat in a box in a small museum in Eastbourne, it costs far more money than people have. I mean, I'm not advocating for it. Um, if we're going to clear a backlog of anything, it should be uh, sexual assault kits, not isotoping skeletons. But the point being is that for anyone who thinks that these are anomalies, there's not enough data to make that call. Okay. I One of my favorite things from the uh, woman from Eastbourne was her final comment in this article I read which was, I'm quite hard-nosed when it comes to skeletons. I've come across a lot of them and worked with lots of them. I don't get emotionally attached to them. 
I'm not ultra religious, so I don't have a spiritual belief which links me to them. But as an archaeologist, when you're excavating skeletons, sometimes you do go through these moments where you suddenly think, oh blimey, yes, this is a person. When her face came back, it was one of the moments where you think, oh wow, you really did live. I'm going to move on to a different skeleton, um, in some ways a much more famous skeleton, the ivory bangle lady that was found in August 1901 in a stone coffin in Bootham in York. The grave has been dated to the latter half of the 4th century, slap bang in the middle of Roman times, and items buried with the lady include expensive luxury items such as African elephant ivory bracelets, beads, pendants, and other jewelry, a blue glass jug, a glass mirror, and a and Yorkshire jet. A rectangular bone mount, possibly for a wooden cuff, was also found in the grave. An inscription on that bone said, Hail, sister, may you live in God. Which is very important because it does suggest that this woman held religious beliefs and may well have been Christian. Also based on these grave goods, and even more importantly, she is believed to have been one of the richest inhabitants of the city of York. And York was not a provincial town at this point. It was one of the crowning achievements of Roman invasion, and it still is. If you haven't been to York, the Roman evidence there is overwhelming and gorgeous and totally worth a trip. So I got this information from fizzorg.com, and the study was led by a woman named Dr. Helena Eckhart of the Department of Archaeology at Reading University, one of the few ones where I'm not talking about Exeter, and they used a whole load of, obviously, isotopic analysis again and forensic ancestry assessments to analyse both the items that she was buried with and who she was as a person. The researchers analysed and measured the lady's skull and facial features and looked at the chemical signatures of her diet. They also examined the burial site to build a picture of her social status and ancestry. Dr Eckhart said that the results showed that the ivory bangle lady was of mixed ancestry and the isotope analysis suggests that she may have migrated to, the, to Britain from warmer climates. This evidence, along with the goods found in the ground, and the fact that the burial rite was unusual, all point to have been of her from North African descent. Arriving in Britain, possibly via the Mediterranean, and that she was of high social status. And that she was of high social status. This is where it's great to edit, but I'm not doing it this week. <laughs> the... Analysis of this lady contradicts the popular assumption about Britain and Rome that African immigrants were usually male or of low status and mostly were slaves. Again, Romans didn't see race. This woman was a wealthy woman in her own right and it had nothing to do with her colour. And, and it, it suggests that the society was very diverse we kind of already knew this because the Roman Empire extended into the nearer Middle East, North Africa, Europe, and there was a huge amount of movement through the empire. I mean, I think it's one of those ideas that as a Roman citizen, you should have been able to move through Rome with no weaponry needed more than just knowing you were a Roman citizen. And that didn't matter where you were from originally. If you were a Roman citizen, you were a Roman citizen. York was an important city, and actually one of the reasons we know that was because it was where Septimus Severus, who was born in North Africa, died. 
we talked a little bit about Septimus Severus last week in History Through a House. And mainly I pulled him up at that point with very little knowledge as to who he was, but my uh, darling husband's a big Harry Potter fan, so his name is Severus, and that seemed enough of a reason to bring up his tenuous connection to what we were talking about then. However, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him now because it's come to my attention that I should be learning more about him. He was a Roman emperor from 193 CE to 211 CE. He was born in a Roman province of Africa. I hesitate. He was a man of color. All you got to do is look at the statue to see that this was a person who did not identify in the same way as some of the other Roman uh, emperors. He doesn't look like them. However, he was a Roman emperor, and it is really never mentioned other than where he was born. His color, his looks are really never mentioned anywhere in Roman history. You just have to infer this from the art. There's a family picture that I saw, and it was an article I read that was really actually saying that he shouldn't be considered the first black Roman emperor because... Was he really black if he was from Northern Africa? And it was a debate that got way beyond anything that I am comfortable getting involved in as to whether those from North Africa are considered black in the same way that those from Sub-Sahara Africa are considered black. But either way, you only need to glance at the portraits to see that if you were looking at a society which judged people based on the color of their skin, he would not have the same color of the skin as the people judging him. However, thankfully for Rome, that was not how they operated. In 2008 CE, oh, 2008, in 208 CE, Severus traveled to Britain with the intention of conquering Caledonia, which was basically Scotland. Modern archaeological discoveries illuminate the scope and direction of his northern campaign. Severus probably arrived in Britain with an army over 40,000 people, and some of the camps that he actually constructed during his campaign would hold this number of people. He was responsible for strengthening Hadrian's Wall and reconquering the southern uplands, which he also enhanced. So he actually went north of Hadrian's Wall. He built a 165-acre camp south of the Antonian Wall, which is the wall that's north of Hadrian's Wall, and assembled his forces there. He then thrust north with his army across the wall into Caledonian territory. He rebuilt and garrisoned many abandoned Roman forts along the East Coast. And I had heard about him, by the way, in the British History Podcast, who do go into quite great detail, I think, about this stuff. But I don't remember them talking about his colour or his race. Um, Around this time, his wife was the woman who I think in probably three or four episodes ago was reported to have been told by a Caledonian chief woman that, we fulfill the demands of nature in a much better way than you do Romans, for we consort openly with the best of men, whereas you let yourself be debauched in secret by the vilest. And that's one of those quotes that we've used to look at the differences in attitudes towards sex between the two different nations. And they were, both Severus and his wife Julia, who, by the way, I may get into this on our other podcast, Legendary Tales, um... Apparently, he married her because there was a prophecy saying he would marry a woman from the area that she was from. So he went and did it, and they lived a very happy life with... And she was one of the most respected women in Roman history. Roman, which was such a patriarchal thing, but that's a whole other problem to get into. But 
part of the reason why he was so successful was the mobility and the shock value of the cavalry that was widely deployed in the ancient Roman legions to conquer England. Cavalrymen from Africa were especially instrumental in the Roman conquest of Europe. Moorish cavalrymen were very valuable to the Roman military establishment due to their fearlessness, strength, bravery, and excellent horsemanship. Um, an attacking horse-mounted soldier has the advantage to greater height, speed, integral mass, and can un- inflict a lot of physical and psychological damage on his opponent- opponents. It's fairly well known that people compare one police horse in a riot as being the same as having ten men. They actually was a legion of Moorish soldiers that were deployed to England and lived and worked in England. And they have set up basically what would be considered the first black community in England. This was in 200 CE. It's really interesting looking at the information. They haven't done a lot of ancestral testing on the people in that area yet because it would be very hard from them to identify how much of their African DNA on the current people there was to do with uh, future generations of immigrants into England or if it was to do with that. I didn't see anything about them trying to figure out finding a contemporary skeletons that they could do isotope testing on, but it would be an interesting way to go with that. I guess what I'm trying to do here is paint that there was this picture of England where so if you haven't looked at the or if you don't remember the uproar there was about some instances of what's termed blackwashing in historical media there was a big furore about it in about 2017 where I believe a cartoon based in the Roman Empire uh, put a black person in there and someone came and said, oh, I can't believe that they're degrading history or whatever by putting black people where black people weren't. And many, many people stood up and said, it's an ignorance of people to think that this would be anything other than showing a clear understanding of what would be in British history. There is an episode of Doctor Who where he goes back to, I think, Shakespearean times and there was a similar furrow about the fact that in Doctor Who they had um, people of colour on the streets. And there was, I, I believe, and this is very poor Doctor Who knowledge, so I'm sorry, that actually his assistant, who at the time was of mixed heritage, said, oh, I can't believe there are people here of colour. And he said, yes, there were people here of colour, but Hollywood would never let you know. So whitewashing is a, is a thing, but often then the reverse of that is seen as more of a thing, but really it can be a lot more historically accurate than the whitewashing may have been. Just as case in point, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story about Theodore and Hadrian, who were religious leaders in Britain in 1672, mid-1600 CE. He Hadrian was asked by Pope Vitalan, the abbot, uh, to take on the role as a replacement for the Bishop of Canterbury. Hadrian was from North Africa, 
and he declined the post and instead suggested that someone named Theodore be considered. Theodore had been in born in modern-day Turkey in around 602 CE and had studied all around northern Africa. He decided to take on the role, Theodore decided to take on the role, but Pope Villatan said he could only go if Hadrian went with him to accompany him. The When they arrived in England, they found England to be in what they considered a much worse religious state, state than they had initially thought. Theodore was appointed Bishop of Canterbury, and they landed. It took them a year, by the way, to get from Rome to Kent, so I don't know what that's about. They didn't... None of the surviving sources from this period passed judgment on either man's ethnicity. We know that one of these people was from Asia and one of these people was from North Africa. However, there isn't a single account that these faces were unusual or warranted comment. There's no way to know for certain that this is the case, but certainly there's no written evidence of it, which really does lead you to conclude that seeing people who weren't purely, well, what at this point would have been a mix of Western European Picts and Romans, seeing people that weren't white wasn't really something that they worried about. Theodore and Hadrian left the English church in a much stronger position than they had found it. Um, Christianity would never be at risk of declining in medieval England. In fact, English clerics then returned the favor and went back to help spread... Christianity to pagan communities all around Europe and in Northern Africa. Guys, these are just a few little stories and it's very tenuously connected as to what's going on. But there are many people with a much more education on what's going on right now than uh, I do. I just think it's really important to realize that when we talk about this stuff, it's not in a bubble and that it's not a new thing. And actually this cry of go back to a time before, there was never time before. People have always looked different. And even St. George was Turkish. So thank God in England we are not seeing the same kind of bigotry from the police here that there is in the States. And guys, I know a lot of cops in the States and they are really good, fair, sensible people I do believe that we are talking about one or two bad apples, but the fact of the matter is is that when you're put in a position of power, one or two bad apples in every hundred bad apples is too many apples. And I don't believe that those that are looting are the same people as those that are protesting. And I think that protesting your rights is absolutely something that people should do when they feel strongly, and this is something that absolutely you should feel strongly about it's not just this week there's been so many instances since i moved to the states of moments where they never get reported in the uk and i know that because when my mom saw that video she was shocked when she saw that cop with his knee on that guy's neck she was surprised she was shocked she was devastated and yet 
the three Americans, me, my husband, and my cousin. I don't, devastation, sadness, certainly emotions, but shock was not one of them. And that's horrible for a whole other set of reasons. And I think that it's important to remember that just in the same way as Corona has united us all as a globe, for the worst, we should all be reuniting in the best feeling of support for those that are trying to do what's best for them and their families and for all those that come after them. All right, guys, that was History Through a House. Hopefully you learned something. All right, bye.